Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. Uh, my name is Dom Fay and I'm joined via Zoom. Uh, Sue Grimmett is here today uh, in the office again. Sue, good to have you, Sue. Yeah, good to be here. And uh, Peter Cat is with us from uh, from the cathedral as well. Hey, Peter. Good morning. Lovely uh, to be with you. And look, we, we are so thrilled um, to welcome back one of our all-time favourite guests on the podcast uh, to join us again for another conversation. Uh, Barbara Brown-Taylor is the author of a number of brilliant books, such as An Altar in the World, Leaving Church, uh, Holy Envy, as we spoke about last time with her, and also Learning to Walk in the Dark, which is going to be the book that, that somewhat forms our conversation today. Uh, Barbara, thank you so much for uh, deciding to have a, a second round with us. There is no one I'd rather talk to. <laughs> well, that's so lovely. We feel very much the same. And, and I suppose yeah. um, the origins of this conversation, uh, just just lightly and loosely a little bit, come from the fact that we were, the three of us were so, I, I guess, um, so moved and so touched by our last conversation with you that it left a real imprint on us in the um, the year or so since we last spoke. And, uh, and then... Um, without going into to too much, I suppose, detail on it, uh, quite a, I went through quite a difficult time in my own life and at, in that journey found my way to your book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, which I had read um, a number of years ago, but I was not in a time of darkness, I suppose, as I read it. So while it was um, a very enjoyable and interesting read back then, it probably um, wasn't at that point um, the life support that I suppose it, it felt it became maybe at the beginning of this year. And so I found myself on Good Friday of this year uh, in Easter time sitting at a, a nature reserve near my place, um, reading the, the book again for maybe the, the 10th time in the last 12 months and uh, decided, Barbara, to send you an email because I still had your email from the time you joined us last time, just telling you how deeply moved I was by the book and deeply uh, I appreciated it and how how much it had helped me in a time of, of, I suppose, my own personal darkness. And that led to a bit of a, a back and forth, which has led to uh, to this conversation today. And and so I suppose the the first question I have before we move into talking about, you know, some of the ideas you look at in the book and, and particularly a scope of perhaps the spiritual art of sharing sorrow, I think is a title you, you've suggested, Barbara, um, which I think is just outstanding. I'm, I'm curious, is this a response, since you wrote this book about eight years ago about uh, learning to walk in the dark about times of, of darkness and viewing them differently. Have you found yourself in situations like this before where people are just uh, opening up their, their hearts and their souls to you? Oh, I think anyone who writes memoir and writes I, I in it is going to hear from people whose I resonates with that I. It's the same thing I guess preachers aim for, which is, you know, to find the point of human contact with people. But yeah, the trick with that book was I wrote that brave book on learning to walk in the dark and, and then very quickly was primary caregiver for both my mother and my sister in their last time on earth. And it was almost like, I won't say God, I'll just say it like the universe said, Oh, let's see how much of that book you took in. Let's, <laughs> let's have a little life encounter with that book. And that increased my compassion for, you know, people who um, go through periods like that, because it, it is one step at a time holding on to a frayed rope to come out Yeah. sometimes. So, so the book came before the experience in some ways and, and was helpful, but I go back and read it now and go, Oh, you thought you were so smart. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, well, it, it is the, the just one of the most beautiful books I have um, ever come across, and I could not recommend it more highly. And I, I suppose you, you do, in the book, you, you look at the binary between light and dark that we have in our world, and basically, um, early on, you talk about how we live in a world that is divided into two halves, the, the light and the dark, the good and the bad, and essentially, the job of, or the work of a life in this culture seems to largely be making sure you're always on the right side of that divide and avoiding all the bad stuff, avoiding all the dark stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, this, this is about eight years ago that the book came out now. Do you think culturally, societally, do you think we've got better at walking in the dark at all in all that's happened over the last eight years? Or do you think we've, we've maybe gotten even worse at it? Oh, let's just take the last three years. Mm. I think there has been um, no choice for a lot of people, especially those who have, um, thin skin, soft heart, something like that. Thin skin's not a um, nice thing to say about people, but I think it is. Mm-hmm. And that is people who are vulnerable um, by choice or by vocation. Last three years have left no choice. And and when I talk about those dualities, yeah, I realize in some ways I wrote a book that championed darkness over light. That was no help. You just flipped the dualism and, you know, leaned on another side. But, but yeah. Uh, it is true that out of darkness, I'm always defending and saying darkness is not a place where God has vanished. It's just a place most of us don't want to be, you know, where either the divine leaves us alone long enough to become inventive or for other people to come to our aid. Uh, but the last three years have leveled the playing field. I found myself in conversation with people of all ages in all conditions of life who have come face to face with the fragility of life like never before. So I would say, at least in my limited circle of acquaintance, that the last three years have left no choice but to mm. become more, what, sober about the inevitability mm. of walking in the dark. Yeah, mm. yeah. And I think something that, that is, you know, maybe this is something we've we've all had to, to wrestle with one way or another is the reality that that certainly in our culture, I imagine probably to some extent always in the human condition, but certainly um, accentuated in, in modern times, is that when we enter the times of darkness, uh, our instinct is to try to escape them. And, um, mm. and we recently had, uh, I don't know if you know Alexander John Shire at all, Barbara, but he recently joined us on the podcast and he spoke about the, uh, the, the fourfold path of the Gospels as he sees it and that second stage of life, the second part uh, part of the path, which is moving through times of suffering and how when we're there, all we want to do is get out of there. All we want to do is not be there. And so whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, um, the end of, of a job, the end of a relationship, a bad health diagnosis, whatever it might be, whenever the whenever life announces to us it is now a time of, of darkness in a sense in, in one way or another, our instinct is to just get out as soon as we possibly can and, and not want to be there. And I suppose that's the the great gift of the book is trying to find ways to maybe be not not necessarily joyful that we're in a time of, of darkness, but find um, the depth in it. Uh, I, I'm curious, if you were to write another chapter, uh, you know, one additional chapter to the book today, is there something in there eight years on that you feel you, you didn't maybe say that you'd want to say today? Oh, absolutely. Um, before I, I answer that question, though, I will say that for me, we have to say this for listeners, darkness is defined differently by everybody who hears the word, depending on one's personal, cultural, national, international, spiritual identity. Uh, for me, what it boils down to is what is unknown, because we're in 
those times you just named, we don't know. We don't know when, how we're going to come out. And, and that's what I pedal fast to get out of. There are, there, there are parts of the dark that are beautiful, but not the unknown parts. So, so in some ways, periods of darkness destroy our illusion, see, that we know where we're going. Now, to answer your question, I would immediately add a whole middle section on twilight. Okay. And it really took readers to remind me that in some ways I was just, um, what, putting weight on the duality between light and dark and that twilight happens twice a day, you know, mm -hmm. every morning, every evening, and that it's a period in between and that the in-between times are the really interesting times. So mm -hmm. I would add, add that immediately and spend a lot more time at dusk and dawn. That's an interesting place. Think about it. Every major world religion has got a, a liturgical service for that period of time. Yeah. You know, I'm so glad you said that because uh, for me, that has been the thing I've been reflecting on. Um, because if we, yes, if we, if we um, focus on light and dark, you miss twilight and dawn. And the amazing thing about twilight and dawn is we actually can't really notice them. Um, every, every year when we do the Easter Vigil, I set myself up for failure by saying <laughs> this year I am going to notice the moment of dawn <laughs> and I only, and I, know, I know what's going to happen because it's the only thing that can happen, um, is that I only notice that the light has crept in after it's been creeping in for some time. Mm. And so it's a bit of a game I play with myself now um, during the Easter Vigil is, oh, it's, oh, I've been taken by surprise again by the, the light has crept up on me and I didn't know it. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the really helpful images when we're dealing with darkness is sometimes the, the, the resurrection light, the new light has been at work mm -hmm. way before we are sensitized to it. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that so much. Mm. That's absolutely beautiful. And the same is true at, at, at dusk. And oh. I've actually learned twilight refers to both periods. I had yeah. only been used to calling the evening one twilight. But you're right, the same thing at night. People will say it's dark outside, but if they go outside, it's not dark yet. Yeah. Mm. That's especially true. Um, well, because we, we live in the subtropics. For us, the uh, light and dark at night is a bit like a switch going off. Yes. It really <laughs> does happen very quickly. <laughs> but I was really I was really enthralled a few years ago um, on a visit. Uh, we were in Rome, I think it was, or Florence, and I realised that even though it had been dark, in adverted commas, for about four hours, when I looked up into the sky, there was still twilight. There was still, still the last little whisper of the day. Um, mm -hmm. So I had dancing on the edge, really, which uh, is another one of my favourite images. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I know, Barbara, you write, you write really beautifully early on in, in the book about taking the mattress outside at your, your farm, your property, and, um, and trying to catch the moment <laughs> that, it turned, that it turned nighttime. Is that something you've uh, you've done it all again since you wrote the book, or is that just a research exercise? Because it sounded um a lot of the things you spoke about in terms of of trying to notice the the movement of the day and the evening sounded actually, to be honest, like really healthy spiritual practices that are that maybe many <laughs> of us could could embed into our lives a little bit more often. 
Uh, no, I mean, to answer your question truthfully, <laughs> it was a research exercise, but life has um, invited me into that again when a dog runs away. And I know there are coyotes out there that are going to kill him if I don't get him in. And I'll chase him until it is dark. It is really dark. And mm. all I can do is listen to his bark to figure <laughs> out where he is. So there are ways in which living where I live without a lot of artificial light has kept me in touch, at least with exactly what we're talking about here, that beautiful liminal space between the two, because mm. change is all I need in my life to hold fast to faith. Even if I know that means change for the worse and change for the better, as long as things are moving, I'll keep moving. You know, it's when they seem stuck that I become hard to help. But um, mm. that's why I love the wisdom tradition in the scripture that Jews and Christians hold in common because it relies on the natural world, one of God's big books, right? Yep. Um, to serve as parable for the life that's described often in the other book, the word book. But I, I at this point in my life, am really taken with the book of sun, stars, trees, dirt, mm. people, flesh. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think um, I, I want to move a little bit in the conversation in a moment into... I suppose, as I mentioned, the spiritual art of sharing sorrow, which was something that came out of our, our emails together. But it did look at the fact of how disconnected, um, or this, this whole your whole book, in a sense, looks at how disconnected we are from maybe half of life. From You know, when you look mm -hmm. at that, that first big book of, of nature and how half of every day roughly is, is darkness. And so when we spend our lives trying to avoid it, uh, we kind of live only half a life in, in a sense. I think something beautiful that, that you unpack um, or that, that you explore in this and also in some of your other work as well, Barbara, is the idea that, that the night is not the enemy of the day. The darkness is not the enemy of light. It is part of, of the cycle and, in fact, a necessary. You know, the only, the only way to get to a new day is through the night. There is no other pathway to new life but through the darkness. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think that's your, maybe the, the, my favorite quote in the whole book is that, that one where you write, new life starts in the dark, whether it is a seed in the ground, a baby in the womb, or Jesus in the tomb, it starts in the dark. Um, so there is a, I think that's just about the most beautiful affirming thing you can hear in times of darkness is that this is the beginning place. This is the birthplace. This is, um, you know, this is where mm -hmm. new life, new life can begin. Um, and yet still every time we enter it, despite that wisdom, it, it, it doesn't feel that way, does it? Is this something that you have found over, I guess, the course of your life and then the eight years since the book, that you're any better when the, the darkness initially descends at going, you know, or at least holding your ground and, and, and remembering that this is the beginning place? Or does it still catch you uh -oh. off guard every time? No, that's, I mean, my definition of faith has become very different in later life than in earlier life. No, it doesn't help at all, Dom. I wish it would, but memory <laughs> helps. I mean, what I find myself doing sometimes is just filling a journal with times mm. like this, times I remember like this and what happened. Yeah. In other words, if I can recover the cyclical nature of my life, even if it's not as regular as the cyclical nature of a day or a season, there on the paper is proof, is proof. Even when my body's scared, when my body's got cortisol making it insane, because I am once again in the land of the unknown, it helps to rehearse. And it helps also hugely to have companions 
Mm-hmm. I've widened my circle of companions and my favorite people were all on each other's speed dials mm-hmm. and we're all allowed to call no matter what time it is, you know, because, um, because we've all got experience. Mm-hmm. And so far we've all, um, you know, continued to move through seasons so far. None of us is stuck in a season. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't let you um, say that you've got a new definition of faith without asking if it's one you're happy to share with us, Barbara, I'd love to hear how you would define faith today. Oh, oh no one likes it. Nobody. No, I'm not going to, this is why I stay off social media. I would just get a bunch of thumbs down. No, I mean, it, it means something like, um, it means something like perseverance. It means something like memory. It means something. It, I mean, faith to me means continuing to put one foot ahead of the other and to, and to find something to love every single day when it seems like there's no hope. I've, you know, hope is another word I've gotten a little bit hard on because hope is about wanting it to be different from the way it is. And faith means being intent on sticking with things the way they are and, and putting one foot ahead and one foot ahead and one foot ahead and finding so many companions in the dark that I didn't even know were there. So the relationship piece redeems it for me. Um, well, so there, I, I could be more articulate, but it's late where I am. And well, yeah, no, I think that's wonderful, Barbara. I, I love that, you know, one foot in front of the other and finding something to love in each moment and, and something to love in that day is, is um, very helpful for me. Cause I mm-hmm. like you, I'm deeply suspicious of that word hope sometimes <laughs> because hope often is construed as something that we want that we don't have yet. Right. Um, or right. hope is fearful that you know hope and fear are the same thing we are fearful that something is going to happen and we're hoping it doesn't um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know and I, I think the uh so I think there are better ways of interpreting hope but I think that's commonly the way our society interprets hope yeah. and the way even we in the church interpret hope we often call on on God to intervene and provide something um that we hope for it's just a normal human thing to do but it tends not to help us um, with with putting that one foot in front of the other and finding something to love in, in each day, you know, so, but hope, hope as a, um, that's bedded in our experience of God, that's bedded in the connections and the relationships between us, hope in um, the hope that bubbles up when you do know that there is that person you can contact who gets it, that hope that bubbles up when uh, you can sense that um, you're part of something much bigger in the world. I think that kind of hope is different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. I never thought of fear and hope as sort of mirror images. I'm going to hang on to that. That's very, never heard those two put together quite like that. Mm-hmm. One of the other things you're doing, Barbara, I think is unmasking our cultural impatience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, just as you've been talking, I've been just thinking of how there's an impatience to get out of the darkness that is mirrored by the incredible impatience uh, that I see and I experience day by day. You know, just, um, just even yesterday, I was walking home from the supermarket and the, you know, the traffic light turned red and four cars <laughs> the intersection i thought gee yeah that's just a, that's a symbol of impatience just everything's being driven and so there's road rage there's 
people give up on cues. But mm. I, but I think there is this cultural impatience that drives us to be intolerant of the darkness because we need to be efficient, um, we need to be productive. Uh, and we can only be productive when we're in the light and the light shining really intensely um, and we burn the midnight oil sort of thing. So we actually push the light as far as we can in an artificial way into the darkness. Well, see, what I love is your adjective, cultural impatience, because there's also a spiritual impatience. Yeah. And thank goodness for the Psalms, right? Because they sanctify that. But that's different from the yeah. cultural impatience you're talking about, which is just don't get in my way because yeah. I need to get there to do that. Mm. But I think, you know, this, the spiritual impatience we see sometimes in scripture helps me because it allows me to just yell, where are you? You said you do this. You didn't do this. You know, I mean, that part. But you helped me make the distinction. Thank you. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it's a really interesting, uh, a really interesting idea that I came across while I was reading this book earlier in the year. Um, again, Barbara, and I was talking to uh, a good friend of mine and, and um, a man who's been on our show a few times. His name is George Tripper, a uh, former priest and Jungian analyst. And, and I was talking about the experience of, of the times of darkness as feeling stuck in a cave. And, and, you know, you mentioned before not being able to see where you're going, not knowing what's going to happen, where it's going. And, feeling just stuck deep underground in this cave, bumping my head every five minutes and, you know, uh, wondering, will you, will I ever find a way out of the cave? And George helped, he gave me a really helpful image. He said, um, in time, most people who do the work and, you know, will go end up looking back on their time in a cave more like time in a gold mine, that this mm. is where you will mine the gold that in some profound way will shape the rest of your life. So don't don't try to rush out of a gold mine. If you're in a gold mine, you wouldn't be looking for the first available exit. You would be thinking, I want to make sure I find the gold here before I leave the mine. And mm. um, and that image was really, I, th I think it was really helpful for me because uh, Sue and I had a, a meal together the other night and I was talking to Sue about how I think most of us are quite comfortable with darkness and suffering in our stories, but we're, we're, we're comfortable with them being um, in the past. We're really comfortable mm -hmm. in saying, you know, uh, yeah, that was a really hard time in my life. I really didn't enjoy it. I really suffered. And that led to how great things are today. Um, <laughs> what, we're, what we're not comfortable with is saying, no, things still aren't necessarily healed, resolved, fixed, transformed today. Aye. Um, Aye. And, and I, in some instances, they may not be for another, another few weeks, months, years, decades, if ever. And, um, and trying to find a way to become comfortable with that without wanting to immediately push the darkness into the, the prologue uh -huh. of, the, of, of some future happy Disney ending. Uh, how, how do you think we, or maybe a better question is, is how have you found ways to, to get a little bit better at, at least, um, as you write in the book, um, spending a couple more seconds in the darkness uh, <laughs> with permission before trying to rush it away? You know, I'm, I mean, first of all, you speak to the retrospective gold, right? Looking mm. in the rearview mirror, it was gold. But you're quite right that for me, the art is when it happens again, it will happen again. When it happens again, can I respond at all differently? I don't have to respond a lot, but five degrees would be lovely. <laughs> so what occurs to me is in the book we're talking about, I did go into a cave and I was completely prepared to be terrified. And instead I felt like I'd crawled into a womb, but you know why I had a guide. 
He knew the way in, he knew the way out, and he was an experienced caver. So my answer to your question is, I now have a very tight circle of people I can call in the middle, in the middle of the hard part. And they can call me in the middle of the hard part. And there's almost no one else to do that with. But we we know we won't judge each other because we've seen each other through a few of these. So at this moment, I'd answer it differently, maybe on Monday or Thursday. But tonight it is companions. And, and they are few and far between who are not, what, frightened by this. Because there are also plenty who've been through this who don't ever want to think about it again until it happens again. But I'm pretty committed to keeping my feet in if I can. And and I suppose that um, leads quite beautifully into the email that, that you did send me. And it's it's quite, I've got to say to our listeners, it's quite a, a treat to receive an email from Barbara Brown Taylor because it's like you're getting, <laughs> uh, you're getting unpublished pages of the book. You are such a beautiful writer, even in um, just your email form, Barbara. Um, but you, you wrote, you were posing the question, why is it that, that, you know, we have this instinct sometimes to let some calls go through to voicemail while gladly answering others, even when we know the person mm-hmm. calling is going through a rough patch and, and how we actually don't talk a lot about the spiritual art of, of sharing sorrow, how, you know, we mm-hmm. seem to instinctively understand it, that there's some people who, who are going through difficult times who will not know how to share those with us in a healthy, productive way for either of us. Mm-hmm. And then there are others who we would sit, you know, by a fire with through to the early hours of the morning and, and just listen mm-hmm. because we do know that they know that art. So looking at this idea of, of how do we share sorrow um, healthily and productively for everybody involved is, I think, a really... Well, it's a conversation I've never, I don't think I've ever been a part of before. And it's something I've never really heard <laughs> spoken about before, but I, I do realize how much we all pick up on it. So I'm wondering mm-hmm. um, from those companions you talk about, what is it that you, that you have learned about uh, sharing times of sorrow in ways that don't drain or, or, or dump on the other, but actually are, are healthy and helpful and um, a real gift in those times? Can we tag first of all, I can't always do it. (laughs) Let's tag first that sometimes I'm a miserable failure at it. But yeah, that was fun writing you. And by the way, getting emails from Dominic Faye is the same way. So fair. And actually, the reason we're having this conversation is because when you and I exchanged emails on Good Friday, You were one of the people I could talk to anytime. And, and, and uh, so what I wrote you soon after that was, I want to be someone who takes responsibility for my part in what's happening, even if it's not entirely clear. In other words, I'm not going to call anybody, any of my companions and blame Mm. other people, the divine, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm going to look hard for my part in what I'm sorrowful about. I'm going to search hard for the common human thread that may knit me and my companion together so that we're talking about our lives and not my life or her life. And I'm going to do my best to stop, take a breath and ask questions along the way and say, does that any of that sound familiar? What part of that sounds crazy? You've been there before. What should I watch out for? You know, but a way in which I'm not uh, leaving a message on an answering machine and I don't want to be interrupted. I just want to get it out, but I really want to hear from the person I'm talking to. And I want them to be a kind of reality check for me. And then, and then finally, although I can't always pull it off, I want to stay somehow in a place of 
curiosity about what's happening to me instead of a place of certainty that it's all going downhill. But, but what do you, I really, Dom, I do want to hear back from you and anybody else can pipe in, but because you and I started this, you, you know, something about this art because you practiced it with me. Oh, well, I mean, that might be the greatest uh, honor of my life that you would say that, Barbara, to be completely honest. I I think it, what was really interesting to me is that a couple of weeks before I, I sent you that email, I was reading a book of um, sort of uh, tales and stories from the Buddhist writer who's based in Australia, Arjun Brahm. And I was reading hmm. one particular story that he tells called A Truckload of Dung. And, um, and I'll, I'll just tell it a bit <laughs> briefly, but what he essentially says is, is every now and then in life, and it happens to everybody a few times in, in big and small ways, it will feel like you've come home from a lovely day and somebody's dumped a truckload of dung at your doorstop. <laughs> and he said, initially, the smell is overwhelming and you, you can't go about your day-to-day life. Every second, just this, this smell is inside of you and it's making you feel sick and you can't cope. And initially, you'll have moments of, you know, furiously wondering why on earth you were given this truckload of dung. Why? What did you do to deserve this? All of that sort of stuff. But then sooner or later comes the moment where you get to make the choice whether you will be the person who everywhere you go from this point onwards, you carry the dung with you and you show everyone around you and they might say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. That's awful. But I also don't want to see and smell that dung, <laughs> you know, or will you find somehow the, the energy through love, through, um, I suppose, some deeper grounded sense of self and, you know, to, to bring the wheelbarrow around the front whenever you have the energy and dig a little bit of that dung into the garden and let something grow from it. And it just, I suppose it really stuck out to me when I was reading that story, how this is, um, there is the inclination when you've had the truckload of dung in a sense, there's the inclination to just become the dung guy or the dung girl, whoever you go, <laughs> you sort of have this smell that follows you, you know, and, and, and people can feel it. They can viscerally right. sense it. And it's not that right. they don't love you. They, they often really will love you, I'm sure, but they just don't know how to handle another hour of dung. You know, they just don't know how to do that. <laughs> and I think it was, a, it was a really helpful image that tied in with a lot of your work that, that when we are in pain, you know, it can feel a little bit like, you know, like we're drowning. And I, I guess it's hard to tell someone, drown a little bit better, please. You know, drown in a way that's a bit easier <laughs> on me. But we all know what it's like when when we have just l- unloaded on somebody in a way that hasn't yeah. helped anybody. And we all know what it's yeah. like to be unloaded on in a way that hasn't helped anybody as well. So there is a uh-huh. real, there's an art form here, but I guess, I guess it is really important to stress how difficult uh-huh. it is to practice this art form when you do feel in some profound way like you are drowning, isn't it? It no, that's so beautiful what you just said. No, I and I've been a dung girl. I have, and and I don't think anyone can avoid that. That that's going to be part of it. But the the lucky thing with companions is is they go, oh please, I've heard this so often. Mm-hmm. I have one friend who said that to me. I've heard this so often, and I thought, well, I won't tell you what I really thought. But then I just <laughs> loved her nine times more yeah. because she called. You know, she sort of called me on it. So no, I mean. You remind me, we had a governor in Georgia who said our problem was we needed better prisoners or something terrible like that. So I love your phrase about we need to be better at (laughs) carting our dung around. No, but I think all we have to do is reflect on what you just said. We all know what it's like to dump and we all know what it's like to be dumped on. So if we wish to cultivate and care for our very dear, very rare companions in this, how will we, you know, how will we do that? And I don't think you and I need to answer that. Everybody knows what it's like, I think, to be on either end of that. So 
if we wish, and not everyone wishes, but to keep this close circle of friends, mm. how will we not lose them? And sometimes we may have to ask them, but they give us cues, don't they? I think there were, you know, when you're having a conversation with people, you can have that stuck feeling in conversation and yeah. you go round and round. But there's those moments, and I wish there was an easy uh, kind of formula for how to have, make these moments happen, but there is none, of course. No. But there's those moments when you just sense a way through and it's almost like a, a I can almost see a little door opening. Uh, um, you're in this place mm. and then suddenly you can just see this little sense, this little way through um, mm. that you can stop confirming that the story, you, we've, you know, we've sat there with the dung for long enough but that to stay much longer just in that place is confirming <laughs> it or feeding it. It's sort of like the way we used to say to kids, you know, go and, go and hit a punching bag when you're angry. And, of course, it just made them angrier. Um, <laughs> it actually doesn't release anything, you know. So there are ways of telling our story that we don't get to it at all, but we just mm-hmm. feed it. Um, and you can be sitting with someone sometimes like that, and then you sense this way through. Sometimes I, mm-hmm. I think it's around seeing a pattern, um, sometimes it's seeing a universal story of which you're sharing yourself and you can sense their place in the universal story and um, finding and these patterns of death and resurrection can be part of that. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes I think there's a way of embodiment, you know, moving from the head to the body um, mm-hmm. and to your senses that can help. Uh, I guess the, I, I, the fact that there is no formula um, doesn't mm-hmm. suit us human beings who like to have an answer for everything. But I think there is a, a tuning in, a, first of all, a recognition that, you know, just telling the story over and over and over again isn't necessarily going mm-hmm. to help you find a way through it, that there's something in the in the relationship and in, in, in multiple relationships too in those conversations that can help you find a different way through. Um, but there's a, there's a third thing at work other than the two people sometimes, and it yeah. may be that wider universal story of which we're a part. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And, you know, you remind me of all these creative writers I work with, and they talk about the muse. Mm -hmm. So why isn't this a muse? Or in my language, the spirit. You know, I tire of a lot of religious language, but I never tire of the activity of the spirit who shows a way where there is no way, who can even bring laughter, you know, in the most Mm -hmm. solemn places. But but that's just lovely. The third, the third, Mm -hmm. the third player, whatever that is, humor. Yep. history memory the spirit the muse who comes yep. in and all of a sudden because we've left out humor yes. which yeah. you know isn't for everyone but it's a great a great way through and we've left out bromides but bromides are not helpful at all i mean i that look, we can all agree on that and just move on right but everything happens for a reason da 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 click I, that's when i hang up yeah, yeah. I think one of the other things that's really helpful, Barbara, is that your emphasis on the word journey. Um, mm. There's a there's an image in C.S. Lewis's The Screw Tape Letters where um, people who are in hell, in inverted commas, are sitting in a muck, in the muck, and um, the thing about sitting in the muck is that they are just so absorbed by the muck they don't realise that behind them the door's actually open and the light's shining. Mm. Uh, they become so infatuated or, or get meaning out of um, the muck that they just don't move. And I think sometimes we can become enthralled by the thing that's keeping us in the darkness 
so that we develop a sort of weird dependency on it. And so that, um, and, I, and I certainly learned this um, years and years ago, I did, I, I became a volunteer telephone counsellor and um, hmm. day one, my supervisor was uh, sitting there watching me and started to laugh after I'd been in a conversation with a person for about an hour and a half <laughs> because this person rang up every day and they just wanted someone to talk to. And um, I went into problem-solving mode. So when, when they said they couldn't get to the shops, I said, well, what about this, what about this? And there was always a blockage. Everything I suggested um, <laughs> was blocked. And, uh, and after this hour and a half, my supervisor just cacking herself, laughing and laughing and laughing and laughing. He said, Peter, <laughs> you have taken the bait hook, line and sinker because... Because what she really wants to do is ring up and just have a chat every day because she's lonely. And what you were doing, in, and you had the audacity to try to do, was to take away her reason for ringing up. Oh. And so oh. she said, next time, just listen and give her a sense of being heard rather than being Mr. Fix-It. And... Oh. Um, that voice plays in my head all the time mm. because she didn't want to move. And, and the thing that she needed was companionship. And whilst it sounded like she was reveling in the darkness, it was actually that she just wanted connection. And I had the audacity to think, oh, I can fix this. I can move her into the light. And then she won't call me again. Yeah, <laughs> but that's yeah, what yeah. she wanted was to hear your voice. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> so right. That's what a right. great story! Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was time well spent, huh? Yeah, uh, it, it's... I, talked, I talked to her a lot after that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it does, much, and for much less time than an hour and a half, I can tell you. Yeah, I, I think, um, Peter, it, it illustrates something really interesting that I see play out in the dynamics at working at a, at a high school often. And I remember this from, from being a high schooler myself, which is so many of the dramas that the students find themselves in are a result of one person going through a difficult time, telling their friend about the difficult time, and then their friend, because this is how we're taught initially to respond to these things, their friend jumps in to try to fix it. So, you know, mm. they'll tell their friend about the other friend they're having a fight with or their partner who they're having a fight with or whatever, or the partner who broke up with them or whatever it might be. And then that friend will then go and talk to the partner or the friend and try to heal <laughs> a thing or fix the thing because they think... They, and this is what we're trained to think, you know, where there's a problem, I'll yeah. fix it and that's how I'll be of service. That's how I'll, how I'll help. Mm. Um, and it probably does take maybe a, a few hundred or thousand times of that not working before we maybe get some sense of a lesson that that's actually <laughs> never the organic way that, that problems resolve, resolve themselves or transform themselves. But that, that, that instinct to fix when someone is sharing their sorrow with us, that instinct to, you know, to mm. jump in and take the sorrow away from them in some way is that something you still feel when when a friend calls up Barbara? Is that still the first instinct that 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 you notice, or is it has it faded a little bit? No, it's. I think it is instinctive. Although this conversation is going to lead me to think about a lot of reasons why it's instinctive. But no, I had an occasion to practice that today, and I could bat that down pretty quickly. I could even look at the text and see the one sentence that was trying to fix it and delete that sentence. Mm. Oh, but it, but I'm old. <laughs> I've had the 10,000 conversations. So no, I think everything you're saying is so 
So true. And I do not wish to be fixed. I don't want to be engaged by anyone. You haven't used the word judgmentalism, but in the same situation I dealt with today, I was so aware I had a clear idea of what the right way to resolve this was. I knew I had the right way. And the only thing in the way was two people had to act the way I thought they should act. <laughs> and that was hopeless. They're never going to do it. Never. So, so the hard thing, I just, at the end, I, I wrote them both and said, I'm subdividing my heart. You, you all have sublets and, but there's no doors between your house, but I love you all, even when I can't stand you. So mm, yeah, no, I think the fix, I, the, the fix of things curious, isn't it? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Being of service or um, tying up the relationship or whatever that is, but it, does not fix it yeah. it doesn't fix it and i think that suspending judgment the the that's the t the great task i think it's one of the great spiritual tasks is um our own uh judgment of ourselves that's that's you know well and truly lodged in the ego our constant narrative that can be judging how we're doing this day what we're doing how you know it's, it's not just of others but of ourselves and when we're listening to someone else of course it, it swings into gear as well and uh having to face the mystery of the other person and know that mm -hmm. we actually don't really we can lean in and 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 have that moment of connection which for me is what makes life worthwhile when you, mm -hmm. you, you sit there and you can feel sense that um the the core that ties you to different people but it's not a complete understanding the other mm -hmm. person will still remain a mystery and so we cannot bring that lens of judgment into any of it we have to just stay with and stay tuned in um and companion um and but it's a it's an everyday discipline thing isn't it i guess just being aware of of that lens both on ourselves and others mm. yeah yeah i asked um a friend going through a time like this. And I said, why can we talk like this? And she said, it's about holding sacred space for each other. And that's, and I said, so what does that mean? And we both agreed it, it's an empty space, which is so tricky. It's, it's not full of a solution, you know, and to, and to honor the sovereignty of the other person is to hold sacred space sometimes is to hold a really empty space and, and to see that not as a failure, but as what? sacred honoring yeah. waiting listening yeah and and what sticks out to me there going back to the earlier part of the conversation where we spoke about hope is you know uh, once you abandon the the desire to fix the next desire can be to proclaim hope to proclaim well it's all <laughs> going to change just wait i'm sure it'll be different tomorrow or this thing will happen next week and it'll be different and, and while that can be helpful and and certainly is necessary in, in many instances what i have found Gen generally to be you know the the most meaningful thing in in these times and this is what you did in your initial reply email to me barbara is when somebody doesn't um doesn't try to i guess diminish the vulnerability doesn't try to diminish the suffering but instead in, in a sense meets it and i know you spoke a little bit mm -hmm. in your reply email about some of the times in your life you had felt this way and then you put in just a beautiful sentence where you say i don't share any of this to compete with your your sharing i i share it to meet it and I think that's ultimately, I don't know, that there's something in us that just wants to know um, we're not alone in this. A mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that seems to me the greatest gift that I have been given in the times of the darkness is when people will sit with me and say, yeah, I, I know that darkness, you're not alone. And um, and then maybe they'll say, and, it, and, and just wait, it, it does turn. And that's helpful. But primarily, I think we just need to know we're not alone. Do you think that's right? 
Oh, I hope it is because I respond the same way. Uh, but we should, since this is going to be a world famous podcast, that everybody's going to replay. Oh, it's going to trend. So we should tag that. Um, that another thing I, I tried not to do, and it sounds like I did it a little bit with you, is to take over the story. Right? Somebody's somebody is sharing a sorrow, and you take it over. Oh yeah, God, let me tell you about when I. And then for the next 40 minutes, it's me, you know, going, 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 because, because there's, that's also, it's not a fix it, but that's another instinct is to, is to compare my story to your story or to bring up mine to match yours. But I found that's not helpful when there's, there's also a lovely kind of balance in these conversations. If one's had some practice with a certain person in them, the give and take uh, becomes, you know, instinctual in the same ways we've talked about others, but but yeah, just a, a tag. I mean, I've especially found since I've lost both parents and a sister now, I do sit up when somebody says, that's hard because I lost my sister too. We don't need to talk about that. But, but then I go, ah, that, that's somebody who's, you know, got, got some skin in this game. So, so it is helpful and, and it's not necessary. It's just helpful. So yeah. that's another part of the art. I'm telling you, we got a book. or authors and we can solicit a few essays but i you know i mean look at the world right now who's got anything else to talk about except what's scary and how hard it is to make plans and pick up and go back to the same job and the same pace and the same relationships i don't know anybody Mm. who's like that so so i think we will all get better at this i hope i hope i hope some of us will do you know i i remember barbara um when I was younger, when I was a teenager and I'd hear the Easter story in church. And I always found the garden of Gethsemane experience to be the most powerful part of that whole, that whole story Mm -hmm. that if I could only read one part of the story, almost that was the one that spoke to me the most. And particularly Mm -hmm. just the, the humanity and the, um, Mm -hmm. the loneliness of, of Jesus saying, could you not um, sit with me one hour? (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. that, that he, he wasn't asking the disciples to, you know, take him out of the suffering or to change the story or, you know, protect him, flee him to a different country um, to talk about how awful the authorities were and how, you know, awful the the hand are over walls for a good hour or two. He just genuinely wanted them to sit with him for an hour. And, and I think as a, as a, even as a young person, something in me sensed that you can't, there's no way under, over or around the darkness of life. There is, we will try and we will constantly keep trying, but it will keep happening. And, um, and all we need is is ones who will sit with us one hour. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. lovely. Yeah. You know, as we've talked and used that word darkness, uh, I'm on alert. And in some ways, I think it's it's um, it's not being in the dark that is ruinous. It's our protestation, our pushback, our abhorrence of it. You know, I mean, maybe that's a faith statement, but it seems to me that my challenge is it's it's my reluctance it's my resistance to the dark period and not the darkness in itself see does that make any sense it's a slight tweak to it but i think there's a way in which it's darkness is such a gorgeous metaphor for how it feels to not have a clue where you're going or how it's going to turn out but i think it's the abhorrence of that the refusal of that that's ruinous Mm. 
Yeah. I, I uh, used this image with my students once um, from, I think it's from the first Harry Potter book about there's this, <laughs> there's this enchanted um, plant called Devil's Snare and um, the, the three of them, Harry, Ron and Hermione, find themselves stuck in Devil's Snare in, in, you know, in their way to try to find the Philosopher's Stone. And, uh, and what happens with the, the Devil's Snare is that if you relax into it, if you accept it and allow it and you just sort of don't struggle against it, you slip through it and you get through it. But the more oh. you resist it, the tighter it binds to you. And one of the three of them <laughs> keeps struggling and keeps resisting. And the more he struggles and resists, the more he's getting choked and suffocating, uh, you know. And, and essentially the wisdom they say is you just have to, to not struggle against the thing. And I, I thought it was a really helpful um, metaphor and a really helpful image to the way mm. that when these times visit us, so much of the pain comes from the struggling against and the resisting mm -hmm. and the, you know, mm -hmm. the, that in a sense as, and again, these conversations, I suppose they always do need to have that, that, um, that clause there that this stuff is really bloody hard. You know, it's not like yeah, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's an easy way to do it, yeah. but that, that, that there is some wisdom, some truth, some release to be found in, in, in finding some way even to struggle against it 1% less. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, holding, holding the tension that we have to fight against injustice and if the darkness comes yeah. mm -hmm. so, you know, which is why which is why binaries just don't help <laughs> because, yeah. because it is about um discernment isn't it um, yeah. you have to discern whether there's something whether there's something real to rail against or whether we're railing against something that can't be railed against if you like mm -hmm. um, there's a discernment mm. process in the midst of that, mm. which, which Good is point. hard yakka. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a role for truth here. I think there's a, um, you know, Jesus talking about himself as truth and that idea that truth will set you free um, can play into a number of things we've talked about, certainly in discerning what is unjust and just standing on truth. You get to the point when you are facing a real injustice, and I'm sure we've all had that experience, when when you know with searing clarity, this is just wrong, and it mm -hmm. doesn't matter what is going to happen to you or to other, other mm -hmm. um, you know, institutions or anything else. There's a point where you stop and say, it's the here I stand moment, you know, that this is, mm -hmm. I'm just going to stand here and protest this. Um, and there's some freedom in that. And I think there's also truth, um, the, the bearing the truth in painful moments, um, is also a liberating thing. It doesn't, for me anyway, I've never found it um, takes lessens the grief, but it lessens the struggle, I mm. think. And I, I, it might be Brene Brown who talks about coming out of the, when you come out of the city, you've got to, it, the, the hardest part is just as you're coming out the gate, not when you make it into the wilderness. So the wilderness might be a sad and hard place, but if we're thinking of like Middle Eastern walled cities and when you come outside, you're in the desert, um, you know, that that stepping out, it's the constantly, the, the turning back and looking back all the time is actually like the devil's snare a little bit, that struggle of back and forth. Whereas when you, in, in practice, in bearing the truth, whatever the truth of your situation may be, um, may not be, uh, I guess, as I say, the grief, the, the, the um, some of the, the struggle and the things you find hard will still be there. But there is a freedom, I think, in seeing very clearly. And in not um, and in in the the relaxing into the the devil's snare idea that just saying this is the way things are, 
let's wait for that that dawn moment let's wait for the what is coming next mm. to be able to step out into it instead of instead of the wrestling um hmm. yeah yeah. Hmm. yeah that's that's beautiful i i i think um something i wanted to ask you about on this front actually barbara is and i know you write about this in the book and i've heard you speak about it elsewhere as well is your time in hospital chaplaincy um you know mm-hmm. where i imagine you would have received a number of uh you know middle of the night calls from people who are facing a suffering that well it's not going to likely be redeemed and transformed on this side of the the grave at least Mm -hmm. who knows what lies beyond there but but this is just agony as things end and I'm I'm Mm -hmm. wondering what that taught you about this spiritual art of of journeying into into these times and the spiritual art of sharing these the the sorrow of these times the problem with being a hospital chaplain was when those times came, people quickly cleaned up the room, packed their loved ones' belongings, and went home. So I never saw what came next. So in the context of the conversation we've been having, I just read something. I shouldn't bring it up if I can't remember the author, but it's like any sorrow can be born if you make it into a story. And I knew that the people who packed up and left the hospital would begin telling the story when they got home and they, and the story would change. So the, the meaning making I knew would follow, but I wouldn't be privy to that part. But, but I knew from the things that happened to me and people I love that would happen. And there's huge um, redemption in that. So I was, I was there with the challenge of what we've been talking about, which is how do you not pour oil on waters that the holy has ruffled? How do you stand in some kind of sacred silence with people while you have a cross around your neck and scripture in your hand and people are looking for you to do something different than stand there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but then to trust that I, I knew if they were human, they'd start telling stories. And I knew if they were human, they'd start making meaning. And so when that happens in situations I do stay in touch with, I welcome that. I welcome it so much when it starts, even if the stories aren't the same and there's disagreement about the meaning, that's the beginning of the next step. Not of healing, not right away, not for years maybe, but but that's the part I didn't get to see in the hospital. Mm. Except when there was a long, long hospital stay, but that doesn't happen anymore with insurance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it also... Um, that part of the book reminded me, Sue, of how you have often spoken about how you prefer doing funerals to doing weddings as a priest, um, oh, which yeah. Yeah, m- <laughs> many people <laughs> might hear that and think that's Sue's got a really dark edge to her there. <laughs> um, but I, I thought it'd be really helpful to ask you maybe to, to talk a little bit about that in, in this space. Yeah, yeah, and I still like doing weddings. Just putting that out there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry. come on! Yeah. Don't back off. Sometimes, sometimes you like doing weddings. That's right. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, but I think that there is moments in funerals um, when you sense that absolute unity amongst amongst all those gathered there. We everyone comes gathered by a sorrow, by a loss, and a grief. Uh, and in that gathering, we tell the story and you hear the t- story mm. told by the people who were closest to the person who died. They tell the story of what that person meant to them, how that person made them feel, how that person enlightened their path. And mm. we and, and then we, you know, kind of and if I'm doing my job well, then I draw that 
that out to the the bigger story in which we all share and the story um which then becomes the 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 story of of spirit and and life and truth um that we're a part of and as we're standing there it's uh, with everyone gathered i always sense that um cord of of connection um and and the 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 grief that unifies us but also and here is maybe a good definition of a better definition of hope that it is in the life we share mm-hmm. and um that that you can't those moments will always stay with me and particularly in, and barbara in in talking hospital chaplaincy i always find going to a hospital bed where i'm anointing someone who's dying and the family are all gathered around incredibly sacred space you stand there in that incredibly thin space where time is irrelevant and uh, that it is just holy. Yeah, I'm with Sue on that. Um, I think it's the rawness of funerals and the fact that they don't have... The problem with weddings is people have two years these days to get ready for them, so the whole thing becomes performance art and, <laughs> and we overly contrived and, you know, we have to deal with the logistics of people wanting to have a forest in the cathedral because they saw it at some <laughs> or royal wedding. Um, whereas funerals, people don't have that sort of time, so they have to be more raw, and and the rawness is leads to a form of honesty and openness, and engagement um, that that is just more real, I think. Um, although. I have to say the last little while, because of COVID, funerals are now taking longer for people to organise and they're starting to attract some of the same, mm-hmm. oh, we've got to add this, we've got to add this, we'd better have a mm-hmm. big slideshow and we'd better have... And, um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, on the whole, it's and, you know, weddings weddings are also great delights, but it's just a different dynamic um, mm-hmm. where it's the, in the funeral, it's, it's the honesty... On the rawness and which is the liberation. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah. Nobody stands around and takes pictures for an hour at a funeral. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although <laughs> <laughs> more and more. <laughs> COVID, COVID has done that for us too. Yeah. Yeah. More, you know, there used to be That's a true. there used to be a sense of we'll you know, we just have to experience a funeral and mm-hmm. we will tell the story of the funeral, but now there's capturing it in pictures and live streaming and mm-hmm. all of which can is really good, but there's, uh, there is a sense that we're sort of trampling on the sacred by trying to capture and control. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a theme we were exploring with Cara and Armstrong mm-hmm. in a recent podcast just about how we are not always present to what we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose the, I'm noticing as we wrap the conversation up, I'm noticing the, um, the part of me that knows people will be listening to this in times of this, um, I guess their own personal sorrow and, and darkness. Um, or maybe people will be listening who are journeying with somebody who is going through that. And, and I can notice in me again, talking about that fixing instinct, I can notice the part of me that would love to, to wrap the podcast up right now with just the perfect, the perfect thing we could say that would, um, that would, you know, give people exactly what they needed. But I suppose the difficult thing, uh, the most difficult thing maybe is how often when it is a long journey of, of sorrow and suffering, how, when you talk to someone or you catch up with someone and you, you talk for a few hours, 
um, you have to leave the thing unresolved and walk away again. Mm-hmm. You, you don't you don't reach an answer there and then. You don't find the solution there and then. Um, you do end up leaving, and they walk away with their pain, or you walk away with their with your pain. And maybe it mm-hmm. is it's slightly eased by the the companionship. It generally is, but it's not. It hasn't disappeared. It hasn't gone anywhere. You're still going home to face it again tonight and then tomorrow. And so I suppose as we end the podcast, there's an element where also we we leave the the mystery of this unresolved. And um and I, I don't know. There's a there's a really interesting uh, idea that I've heard um, the Irish theologian Pete Rollins talk about that he thinks the world needs more pubs and less clubs. Um, you know, <laughs> but basically the idea of the clubs where the music's really loud and you go to avoid your, your depth and your suffering and what you're really feeling. We need less of that and more pubs where, you know, someone's playing a song about loss and grief on the stage and you're sitting in a booth sharing your stories and others are sharing their stories with you. And that ultimately, um, the, the, the healing is found not in the solution, but in the sharing. And I, I maybe that's, is that the... Maybe a, a, a place to, to wrap it up. Do you think, Barbara? I just um, I'm trying to find the right uh, the right place to to leave this conversation. Um, I suppose, which is always no. the difficulty when you you're talking about things such as this, isn't it? No, it's the truth. And what a fabulous bunch of conversation partners. I, I wrote down muck, dung, gold. Okay, so leave it to your <laughs> to your smart aleck North American here. And what I decided is we could try to move from muck and dung to gold, but I'm just going to leave it all in the same bucket. And I'm just going to swirl it around with my hand from time to time and know that it's all in there. So there's a non-binary end to a fabulous conversation. Yeah, well, look, uh, the the book, for those who haven't uh, come across it before, it is Learning to Walk in the Dark. It's just such a um, phenomenally beautiful and, and helpful book. Barbara, you are such a gift to uh, to know and to share another conversation with. Thank you so, so much for making time to, to be with us again. Peter, Sue, Dom, thanks so much.